0: All right, I hope you have a Bible because you'll want to read some great verses with me in just a moment. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. So uh, open that up if you have one. If you don't, uh, we have some copies of the scriptures over on the table on the side. If you want to grab one, you're welcome to do that. Uh, This weekend is also a time where we remember and celebrate veterans. And for those of you that have served our nation. Uh, Thank you. We're grateful for your sacrifice and your service. Uh, Because of that, we all experienced a freedom this past Tuesday to participate in an electoral process that a lot of uh, nations and peoples in the world don't get to do. And uh, I don't know how you felt about this past Tuesday. But uh, because of our freedoms, we got to elect a president. We got to elect senators and congressmen. We got to elect a governor and various state representatives. We got to uh, vote on various uh, state and local referendum. That's a privilege. And um, for those of you that exercised that privilege, uh, I'm grateful for your participation in the process. Uh, The fact of the matter is when it was all said and done, uh, some people felt like winners some people felt like losers. And uh, wherever you fall on that continuum, uh, I want to highlight for us that the real issue before us today is that God is the winner. God's still on the throne. God's still sovereign. God still has a plan and a purpose that He is uh, enacting in this world. God is busy about transforming life and changing this world. No one is dethroning God. I take a lot of comfort in that. (laughs) No one is derailing God's plans or God's agenda. Now, we just reflected a few moments ago because it's the International Day of Prayer about the persecuted church and and brothers and sisters around the globe that are suffering and in many cases dying for their faith in Jesus. The rest of that story is that every day, 175,000 new believers are coming into the kingdom of God. Every day. Christianity is the fastest growing faith or religion whatever you want to call it in the world and it is quickly spreading around the globe in a way that is accomplishing the purposes of God to effectively embrace the heart of man one life at a time to the tune of 175,000 every day I'm aware of a church in a Muslim nation where Christianity is outlawed and forbidden that has 30,000 participants, members of their church, that meet every week. say, how in the world do they do that? Well, they meet in over 300 different locations. And they don't have dedicated facilities like we get to enjoy with uh, uh, air that's created by air systems (laughs) and uh, have dedicated uh, bands and, and sound systems and all that kind of thing. They don't have programming for their children, but they get together to pray, to worship, to secure their hearts more firmly to Christ. And this happens in country after country. There's many, many examples that I could share with you, and I'm going to share some of them in the next couple of weeks as well. In 1900, the Christian world was 80% white, and mostly western and northern hemisphere. By the year 2000, 80% of all believers were non-white, non-western, and southern hemisphere. God's on the move. God's changing this world. God is getting a hold of the hearts of men and women and children and forever redeeming and rescuing And creating life within them. We're going to talk about that for these next few weeks. And to do so today, I'm talking about how God can do that in a way that will sometimes blindside us. Now, I can't say the word blindside without Joe Theismann coming to mind. I'm just curious uh, who in the house has any familiarity with Joe Theismann? Oh, gosh, I'm surprised because he's an old guy <laughs> uh, back in my time. But uh, Joe Theismann participated in one of the most notorious football plays that ever happened. And for those of you that don't care anything about football, uh, hang with me for two minutes, and it will it'll be behind us, okay? But uh, it was 27 years ago this month that Joe Theismann was playing for the Washington Redskins in a Monday night football game against the New York Giants. And uh, he had won a couple of Super Bowls, and he had been an MVP and an all-pro player. I mean, he had quite the career. But after that night, he never played football again. And what happened was this. Uh, on a particular play that uh, we call a flea flicker, and I won't go beyond that, uh, the ball comes back to him, and he gets in a position ready to throw. And the, uh, one of the most significant linebackers that's ever played the game, Lawrence Taylor, tackled him. Now, that photo is uh, a little bit blurred because it was taken out of act- an action shot. And just so you know what kind of guy I am, I totally thought about playing the YouTube for you today. But because I love you and I didn't want to gross you out, we didn't do it. And you that just reached for your phone to look at the YouTube, can you wait till a little bit later? Okay, thanks. Uh, so Lawrence Taylor comes up on Theismann and tackles him, and as he's bringing him down, his knee comes right into Theismann's leg, and what you see happen is that he snapped Theismann's leg. He broke the fibia and the tibia, and fibula and tibia, and it was like the worst break ever. And if you're having a hard time locating it, it's right there. So now you see it. Um, It has been voted in multiple polls uh, as the most shocking moment in sports history, as the worst moment in sports history, as the most painful uh, event that ever took place in sports, and so on like that. Uh, And I actually was watching the game that night when it happened. And uh, I cannot tell you how, you know, I got so sick in my stomach I thought I was going to lose it. It was very, very painful. Now, what happened there uh, was that you know, a right-handed quarterback was getting ready to try to throw the ball and get rid of it. And when a right-handed quarterback does that, his whole left side is blind to him. He can't see somebody coming at him and thus the term blind side. And it's given a rise to uh, the whole notion of how important linemen are now because these expensive quarterbacks were getting taken out on their blind side. And they even created a movie with that kind of as the backstory. How many of you saw the blind side? Great movie. I recommend it to you. Uh, So now they have all kinds of expertise trying to address these Lawrence Taylor types who would come in and crush you in that kind of way. I say all of that to say this. There's a biblical point to it. You're saying, hurry, get there. Is that we're going to take a few minutes to reflect on a guy who was blindsided by God. And I don't use that term to be cute, I use it to be precise. The man that we have come to know as the Apostle Paul was blindsided by God. Didn't see it coming. And it leveled him to such a point and broke his life, broke his heart to such a point that it is, in my mind, totally comparable to the broken leg Joe Theismann had. Now, real quick, for those of you that have limited awareness about Paul, he was born in a uh, Roman city, uh, a major Roman city called Tarsus, uh, which is in southern Asia Minor or modern Turkey. And it was uh, a significant city in its day. It was a university city. There were only three major universities in the world at that time. One was in Athens, one was in Alexandria, and one was in Tarsus. And that's where Paul grew up. He grew up in this educated, enlightened Area, his father was a devout Jew in this Roman outpost, and not only devout, but Pharisee by conviction. He was also a very proud member of the tribe of Benjamin, which was also the tribe that produced Israel's first king. You'll remember Saul. And likely uh, uh, Paul was named for Saul, that was his given name, and Paul was a second name or a Roman name for him. So he grows up in this university city in this very devout family uh, who is pharisaical and very committed to the living of the law. And rather than train his son to be a merchant like himself, Paul's father uh, commits him to the ministry and sets him aside to be a rabbi. And so probably around the age of 13, uh, Paul makes his way to Jerusalem from Tarsus so that he can enter into one of the most important rabbinic schools of that day and study from one of the most important rabbis of his day, Gamaliel. And so he's in Jerusalem uh, in those teen years. He's studying uh, the law and the Torah, the, the Old Testament. Uh, he's becoming equipped to be a rabbi. And it's during you know, this time that this guy Jesus comes on the scene. And There have been in Israel's history, literally hundreds of messiahs. Guys that came along and said, I'm the long-awaited one. I'm the one that God's anointed. I'm going to deliver Israel, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, every time somebody like this would come along, some number, you know... Uh, 10, 12, 20, who knows? A few, uh, occasionally a couple of hundred would follow one of these false messiahs, and they would always end up badly. They'd always end up getting killed by the local government or something like that. But this time was extraordinary because this messiah, this Jesus, didn't have dozens following him, didn't have hundreds following him. He had tens of thousands following him. Within a couple of months after his crucifixion, there were tens of thousands. I mean, this Jesus movement was just explosive. And so you can imagine all of the Pharisees and all the religious leaders were very concerned about how many Jews were being converted to Christianity. And so they began to try to stop this, and they began to persecute believers and followers of Jesus. And this is where we are introduced to Saul of Tarsus. Uh, At the very end of Acts chapter 7, uh, Saul is standing at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. He's a deacon in the church. He's an unbelievable teacher. He has a uh, comprehension of the gospel of what God's been doing from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the current day. He got it as to who Jesus was and is and, and the saving work, the redeeming work that God was doing through Jesus. And so he was very effective in articulating this and communicating this. And uh, he, he was seized by Jewish authorities and they stoned him to death. I mean, you just have to let the brutality of stoning kind of enter your mind for a moment. And this young rabbi... Saul not only witnesses it, but you know the guys have to get limbered up to be able to throw the rocks really well, and they take off their cloaks and their tunics and they lay them at Saul's feet, and we're told that he watches all of this in approval. So begin reading with me in Acts chapter eight. We pick up the story uh, starting with verse one, <clears throat> and Saul approved. Of his execution. Talking about Stephen's death. And there arose on that day. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. Let me just pause there and and ask you this question. If you were God. And you had just done the saving work of history and the sacrifice of the Son, Jesus, and you had just begun to amass tens of thousands of followers and believers who are going to be a part of sharing this good news, sharing this gospel, and seeing uh, the faith in Christ spread around the globe, how would you go about getting everybody to actually leave Jerusalem and go around the world? Well, I'm sure that there are a number of Christ followers who had it just stirred in their heart. Leave Jerusalem, go other places in the world, share the gospel. But overwhelmingly, the gospel got spread through persecution. And when when persecution began to clamp down on the church, what are we reading right here? People began to flee Jerusalem left and right. They they began to scatter. Everybody but the apostles were like hitting the road trying to find a more safe and secure place than Jerusalem because Jerusalem had become deadly for Christians. And so everybody leaves except the apostles. Uh, Verse 2, "...devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house." And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this guy is passionate. This guy is possessed. He is so convinced that that the work of God is about building Jews, about creating people that who embrace the law and embrace the, the Old Testament uh, system of rightly relating your life to God. And that... Uh, the followers of Jesus is threat number one to the work of God. He's so convinced of all that, he's on the front line of persecution, seizing believers, incarcerating them. And it's not enough that that happened in Jerusalem. As we turn the page to chapter 9, what we're going to find out is that Paul is so concerned with how many believers have gone north up to the great city of Damascus in Syria. He goes to the authorities and says, will you give me letters of authority to go to Damascus and there I will arrest Christians and I'll bring them back here. They're not going to get away from us. I'll go get them. Look with me in chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if we found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, I'm going to ask you to just kind of bore down into this story with a little more depth. Think about it hard. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. I think I know God. I think I know the Word of God. I think I know the will of God. I think I know the way of God. I think I see the enemy of God. I am all in. I'm going to give my life to the preservation of what is right, true, and of God. He's all in. This is not a nominal follower of God. He's all in. He goes about the work of apprehending and persecuting Christians. He takes on this additional assignment to go to Damascus, filled with fervor, filled with passion, filled with a righteous indignation. Right? And then he's blindsided. Boom! Why are you persecuting me? Who are, you? Who are you? Who's talking to me? Jesus, whom you are persecuting. <laughs> and for three days in Damascus, still blind from the light, he won't eat, he won't drink, he can't be comforted, Nothing can soften the blow of what's happened to his heart. He's crushed. He's crushed. What have I been wrong? What have I been on the wrong side of the issue? What have I been doing? Is Jesus alive? They said he rose. Is that who I encountered on the road? meanwhile, God stirs a man to go and join God in what God's doing with Paul. Continue the story with me in chapter 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus. I love this part of the story. Named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. I love that response. Now, what do you want? Who is that? Here I am, Lord. He knew who was speaking into his life. And it was a ready response. Not like, oh no, God's doing something. Oh no, God's stirring me. Oh no. So there's a ready response. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise. Rise. Go to the street called Straight. Which is, it was a major city in Damascus. It's still there today. And in fact, there's a church on the site where um, this all takes place that you're reading about right now. The Lord said, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Can you imagine God using your life like that? i got a plan for you. I'm about to redeem somebody that's very important to my kingdom work, and I want you to go over, I want you to lay a hand on him, and I want you to pray for him. I'm involving you in this. And Ananias, who was on the go, had a green light for ready to to go with God, answers, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he here has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Are you sure, Lord, this is a good idea? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before all the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him... then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. is that a great story? Love that story. Ananias graciously was invited by the Almighty Eternal Creator God into His redemptive activity. Here's what I'm doing. It's happening over here on this street with this guy. I want you to join me. And I want you to go over here and I'm going to use your hand. You lay your hand on him. You pray my blessing on him. I'm going to bring that blessing to him. I'm going to restore his sight. His heart's going to be converted. And he will be my servant from that point for the cause of my kingdom. The cause of Christ. All right, Lord. You know what a reputation he's got. You know how risky this is. Okay, I'm gone. I'll do it. And he does it. We'll look a little bit at it the next couple of weeks about how God then began to use Paul and literally going around the world, planting churches, spreading the gospel, becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I I want to ask you to reflect with me on another story for just a few minutes that's a little more contemporary, a little more related to our time. And it has to do with C.S. Lewis. Because I just find so many parallels between Clive Staples Lewis and the Apostle Paul. Um, Lewis grew up in Ireland and his grandfather was an Anglican priest and he had a church-going family, but it just didn't mean a whole lot to him. His mother died in his youth and by the time he was 15, he had so given up on the faith and found it so irrelevant, he became an atheist and a rather robust atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also began to be quite the student and scholar of literature, particularly he was drawn to mythology and to legend, particularly to Scandinavian legend. And so he began to immerse himself in that whole literary world. And then World War I happened. So he enlists in the British Army. He fights in World War I. He's wounded uh, alongside two of his friends who were killed. And this uh, devastates him. This really impacts his life in, in a powerful way. Uh, when he uh, is discharged from the service later, he reenters his studies, uh, but con- you know, continuously fights bouts of depression. And uh, on occasion was heard to say, I, I wish there was a God. I'd be so mad at him because of the way life had been unfolding for him. The loss of his mother, the distance of his father, who was kind of a harsh guy, the whole war thing, uh, people that he loved being killed, and so many things. I I wish there was a God. I'd be so ticked off at him, so angry with him. But he couldn't believe. Uh, Along the way, he uh, gets a teaching opportunity at Oxford. And uh, there, he meets up with a couple of uh, guys that become great friends. They regularly uh, get together for uh, debates and discussions and they're known for going to a certain pub and having a pipe and a pint. And there they would talk for hours about mythology, about legend, about uh, faith, about Christianity, about the world, etc. And of course, one of those guys was a guy named J.R.R. R. Tolkien who was a very strong believer. And uh, he and this other Professor would sit there and talk with Lewis uh, for hours about why Christianity is believable, why uh, you ought to give more serious consideration to this. So, as uh, as time passed on and these discussions continued to happen, um, there were various uh, things that happened in Lewis's life. For one, he lost a, a key tutor in his life. And when that guy died, he was like, There's just things that my logic and my reason can't touch. There's something more. And that began to open his heart to the point where he he said, I think I became a theist. I began to believe there can be a God. Two years later, he's at this pub with Tolkien and and the other professor. And they they talk late into the night. Then they get up and they begin to walk the various avenues of uh, Oxford. And they do so until 3 a.m basically talking about God, Christ, faith. And uh, Tolkien finally makes this statement to him. He says, see, your your deal, Jack, and that was his nickname, everybody called him Jack, your deal is that um, you can't accept that... um, All the things that are around the story of Christ can be true. But here's the thing. You love myth. You love legend. And and what God has done is he's given you the myth of all myths, only it's a true myth. It absolutely happened. That statement could not escape Lewis. It's a true myth. And so he reflected over that for a couple of days. He had read the New Testament. He had read the scriptures. And what he began to recall is this. I mean, he knew legend when he read it. He'd studied a lot of legend. He'd studied a lot of myth. And it suddenly it occurred to him what he read in the New Testament was not legend, it wasn't myth. Because he knows what that looks like. He said, What I was actually reading was eyewitness account. And I'm reading story after story of what people saw and what people experienced. And he said, a couple of days later, I hop on the bike with my brother, and he's talking about his motorcycle, and they're taking a ride to the zoo. And he said, on the way to the zoo, I was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And by the time we got to the zoo, I was a believer in Jesus Christ. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. But something flipped in his heart, and he began to believe. And not only did he begin to believe, he began to embrace Jesus, and he began to embrace the New Testament, and he began to embrace the mission of Christ to see others come to know God in a personal way, to such an extent he became the apologist of the 20th century. And of course, his writings, and many of you are very familiar with his writings, have been some of the most provocative writings, some of the most clear calls to faith in Christ of anything that's uh, ever been produced. And as Paul had become an apostle to the Gentiles, Lewis has been called an apostle to the skeptics because of the great number of skeptics that have come to Christ through Lewis's writings and Lewis' testimony and story. I say all that to say this. Uh, and I, I'm going to finish with this, okay? If you're like, okay, when's this going? This past week, just to bring it a little more current, this past week, I'm having a conversation with a guy that I've had multiple faith conversations with. And he says, Scott, I've I got to tell you what's happening. Now, this is a guy who came out of a family of origin with a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment. And he learned at a very early age, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And so he became a very sufficient kind of guy. You know, who knows if there's a God? I just know I've got to take care of my life. So this is his whole system that he's come out of. And uh, he, he, he has struggled with belief in whether there is a God or not. And he has especially struggled with evangelical Christianity because it flies in the face of so many things he already does believe in terms of a variety of issues. But he has a friend, he has somebody that he really cares about who is in recovery. And as a way to support this person that he loves, he went to an Al-Anon meeting. For those of you that don't know, uh, AA, Al-Anon, some of these other recovery groups that are based upon the 12 steps. He's going through these steps. He's looking at these steps. Step one says you have to admit that you're powerless over your problems and over your life situations. That It's beyond you to really manage your life. He goes, i got no problem with that. Got it powerless. Step two says I came to a point where I believe there is a power greater than myself who can restore me to sanity. He's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Can came to believe there's a power, I know you're talking about God, that's greater than me, that can restore me to sanity. I just don't know. So as he's grappling with that step, he's kind of tipping toward theism maybe there is a God maybe there is a power greater than myself maybe that's something I should be open to so these are the the kind of conversations that we've been having and and that goes back uh, a little ways but more currently this past week he's listening to a radio program on NPR And the speaker on the radio program is totally uh, unpacking some current biblical teaching on a current issue that was on a referendum and saying why it's no longer relevant. Now, my friend and I are on polar opposites on this issue. And he's telling me how this broadcaster on NPR has just settled that issue for him. The Bible's got no problem with my my issue, this, this thing that I really care about that kind of stands between me and God. Isn't that great, he tells me. I can believe in God if he's not on the wrong side of this issue. And I'm like, great. You know, I don't know what to say. Then the vote happens on Tuesday and the vote goes in his way on this particular referendum and he goes, isn't that great? Now, you know, this can all be addressed in a more wholesome, uh, holistic kind of way. And I'm like, great. And then somebody else gives him a book about searching for God that just begins to speak right into where he is right now. And he said, you know, I just had to tell somebody, I see all these things. I'm looking at the 12 steps. I hear this radio program, the way the vote goes this past Tuesday. Uh, I'm reading this book. I think God's doing something with my life. And I didn't know who in the world I could tell that to other than you. And I said, There's no question in my mind, God's in pursuit of your life. He's stirring all around you, he's stirring within you. He's inviting you to draw close and get to know him in a personal way. They say, Well I still got this like wall of unbelief. I've got kind of like this little belief thing kind of stirring in me, but I've got this whole wall of unbelief. What do I do about that unbelief? And for those of you that know your Bible, I immediately had come to mind, the guy who prayed the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. And I said, hey, there's a, there's a prayer for you in the Bible. And here it is. And you need to pray this prayer. And I pray it all the time until God answers it. And I believe God wants to answer it. God, I want to believe, help my unbelief. He's going to answer that. He said, I'm going to pray that. Now, I close with that story because of this, friends. Politically, socially, culturally, this guy and I are opposite ends of the spectrum. He felt one way about Tuesday and recent issues, and I felt a totally opposite way about all of those things. And at the same time, God was at work using all of these cultural circumstances to soften his heart, to break through layers, to break through barriers, and to woo and to draw him to himself. Are you following me? Nobody's dethroned God. Nobody has derailed God's agenda. God is still on the move. God is still pursuing hearts. God is still touching lives. God is still embracing and blessing. And He's inviting us to join Him in the blessing. He invited Ananias to bless Paul. He invited Tolkien to bless Lewis. He's inviting me to bless my friend. He's inviting you to bless the people that He's put around your life in ways that ignite their heart toward Christ. It's a great day. It's an awesome day. It's a transformation day because God's changing the world. And so that leads me to close with this question. So what? I'm glad you got excited about that, Scott. So what? Cool story, Paul. Cool story, Lewis. Cool story about your friend. Thanks for telling me the stories, you know. So what? Whose side are you on? Because if you are going to be on God's side... The so what is that this is all that matters. This is all that He is about. And if I concern myself with all of these secondary, superficial types of issues, and I don't ever get down to the core, I don't ever get down to the foundation of life connected to God through faith in Jesus, it is a so what doesn't matter. But if this is the truth, if this is what's real, if this is what God's doing, then, friend, we have to get on God's side because if we don't, we're on the other side. (laughs) We're trying to oppose Him if we're not getting on His side. Jesus said, those who are not with me are against me. So, Will you follow Christ? I'm not talking about, well, I believe the New Testament. I believe the resurrection happened. I you know, I, I know you've got a list of doctrinal things you would check off and say, I believe all this. But what you see happening in the New Testament, what we will see happening in the book of Acts, is that people were not just subscribing to a list of beliefs. They were giving their lives to Jesus and following Him wherever He went. Doing whatever He was doing. And it changed the world in their time and in their day. Will you follow Him? Will you join the movement? This is going on all over the globe. The big vacant spot is in the northern hemisphere and the the western world. Europe and America right now. That challenges me. I'm going to tell you what, and a number of you have talked to me this week about the election and how things turned out. There's no place I'd rather be than right here, right now, with the culture that we live in and the opportunity that God's bringing about. This is the perfect recipe. This is the perfect mix for great glory to God as He works in our midst. There's no place I'd rather be. There's no time I'd rather live. Right here, Right now, for Christ, for His cause, I want to be in on the movement. Do you want to be in on the movement? And will you bless others in Jesus' name? That's what we're talking about. Well, I don't know how I'd convince anybody of anything. You don't have to convince anybody of anything. That's not your job, to convince anybody. That's the job of a part of the Godhead called Holy Spirit. Your job is to join God in whatever He's doing in that person's life and bless him. Bless her. In effect, be a touch of God on that life. In effect, be a part of the embrace of that life with the arms of God. And it doesn't matter. Do you understand from my story? It does not matter what they currently believe, what their current positions are, where they are with the whole system of thought about this world and their philosophy and things like that. We just love them, embrace them, walk with them, live with them, and let God do stuff through and through in them as He will. Do you get what I'm talking about? Let me pray for you. God, it is absolutely stunning that You love people that, as Lewis said, You would clothe Yourself in humility and chase after us. It's unbelievable. And that You would pay the price to redeem us. To cover the penalty of our sin. We are in awe. We are dumbstruck about that. Uh, We can't get over the way that you keep coming up on the blind side of people and that you invite us into all of that. So I just pray for my friends today you'd have your will, your way, with us. You're the potter. We're the clay. You mold us. You make us after your will.